You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Hello, everyone. How good to see you here on the 3rd of July, 2022. Good morning, members, friends, visitors, Zoomers, sojourners, and seekers. We are um, a congregation with a long, strong, liberal history. Love is the spirit of this church, we say, and service is its law. I am Kate Tucker, she, her, serving you this summer as worship coordinator. Long, long ago, I served you as associate minister, and I am deeply pleased to be around again for a few weeks this summer. Today is July 3rd. Tomorrow is July 4th, the date that commemorates the passage of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. The vote took place on July 2nd, but the text still needed revision, and our founding documents have needed revising ever since. And next Sunday, July 10, following the service in the tent, we have a congregational plant-based lunch, thanks to the Food Solutions crew of the Environmental Justice Team. And at 11.30, we will have a blessing of the animals, honoring the furry, feathered, and scaly creatures who inhabit our homes, our lives, and our hearts. We gather at 11.30, all species, great and small, four-legged, two-legged, no-legged. Or you can bring a photo or a collar or your pet's favorite toy, and we will find a way to bless them in spirit. So uh, after the blessings, an optional dog walk. Today we have Tim Crack and Lisa Sinclair and Fazia Khan providing music and helping us sing. Thank you. It's a good day for singing. And thanks always to John and Stephen for managing all things digital. So today Meg Riley, the Reverend Meg Riley is with us and Mark Caswell is with us too. They will help us reflect on the larger story of our nation's past. The Reverend Meg Riley most of you know, is a lifelong Unitarian Universalist, spent 38 years as a religious professional, and now serves as co-moderator of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Go, Meg. Um, Meg was a religious educator here in the 1980s when Reverend John Cummins insisted, in spite of her qualms, that she get used to pulpit speaking. (laughs) How glad we are. And Mark is a member of this church, a student at United Theological Seminary on the path to ordination. You may know Mark as an usher, a circle facilitator, a religious educator here. At this time, I want to name and bless all the ways you, congregation, are and have been through the years a teaching church, giving ministers in training a loving place to experiment and learn. This is an important part of seminary education and beyond seminary and a key part of their 
formation and transformation, so no small thing. So now let's settle ourselves, sitting comfortably, aware of the space over our heads, the space around us, the space within us, feet on the floor, aware of the companions seated near us, aware of our breathing, aware of the breath of life, aware as we sit in these pews that the ground below is part of the homeland of Lakota and Ojibwe and other indigenous peoples who have stewarded this land and to whom we owe deep honor, ongoing reparations, and honest storytelling about this place. Just take another moment of quiet. Come, let us worship together. Mark will help me light the chalice. Please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Hello friends, thank you so much for letting me share a story with you today. Have any of you ever been on a field trip with school? Raise your hand if you've been on a field trip before. Field trips are when your school goes somewhere other than school. Everyone piles onto a bus and there are chaperones and sometimes singing on the bus and there are snacks. You get to go somewhere special to learn something that you can't learn in the classroom. Well, this story is about a field trip to the Statue of Liberty, which was originally named Liberty Enlightening the World. Fancy name, huh? It was a long trip on a bus, and there was singing, and there were snacks, and there were chaperones. When the bus arrived in view of the statue, the kids piled out of the bus. The students saw how big the statue was. Wow, so tall, so green. Why is she green? Why is she on an island? The students wondered. Their teacher said, you'll find out when you're inside the statue. Inside the statue? Yes, replied the teacher. The statue is so big you can climb up inside all the way to the crown. The statue is 305 feet above the water. Excited about going inside the statue, the students gleefully marched onto the ferry and looked out over the choppy water in New York Harbor. They could see New York City and New Jersey, and they could hear seagulls squawking overhead looking for extra snacks on the ferry. Be warned, if you've never met a seagull, a seagull will snatch a whole sandwich out of your hand if you aren't careful. So be careful around seagulls if you're hungry like they are. As they got closer, everyone was excited. They had to get closer and investigate. They had to look at what they were seeing and describe it. They could see this massive green statue. Why was it green, one of the students questioned again. 
Another stated, I can see her torch, her robes, her crown. She's holding a book. I wonder what she's reading. The teacher explained that she was originally brown, made of copper, the color of a new penny. Over time, copper turns green due to oxidation. Exposure to air naturally changes the color. Their teacher couldn't answer all of their questions, so she asked a guide at the statue, what is Lady Liberty reading? The guide replied, she's holding a book with the date of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. On July 4, 1776, the 13 American colonies created a document to officially separate themselves from England as a British colony. One of the students remarked, America was a colony of England? And that was only 254 years ago from today? While they were inside the statue, the students saw that there were scale models that the designer, a French man named Frederic Auguste Bartholdi, had made before the actual statue was constructed. Some of the models had chains in her hands instead of the book. Huh, why replace the chains with a book? The students could see in the model that there were broken chains by the statue's feet and that one of the statue's feet was lifted. One of the students commented, why can't we see the chains or feet from inside the statue? They noticed that there was also a poem that was inscribed on a metal plate. The poem was called The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she. With lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, thy wretched refuse of thy teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Some parts of that poem seemed very familiar to some of the students. One of the students wondered out loud, this poem seems like it's about immigrants. Wasn't this statue built to celebrate 100 years of independence from England? Why was this statue built? I'm confused. The guide from the museum overheard this query and replied, the original intent for the statue was by a French abolitionist, Edward de la Boulay, who hoped celebrating America's end of slavery would help inspire the world. Did it work, one of the students inquired. The guide responded, well, by the statue's dedication in 1886, reconstruction had been crushed and the Supreme Court had rolled back civil rights protection. Black newspapers said the statue was meaningless and hypocritical. The Cleveland Gazette printed, the idea of liberty of this country enlightening the world was ridiculous in the extreme. The guide suggested the student take a peek at a book, Her Right Foot by Dave Eggers, that was in the gift shop. The students discovered that her right foot was lifted and it's often forgotten. Why do we forget her right foot? The lifted foot and her right leg suggest that the statue is in motion. The, student read, the students read Edgar's words. 
Liberty and freedom from oppression are not things you get, get or grant by standing around like some kind of statue. No. These things require action, courage, an unwillingness to rest. On their way home from the field trip, one of the students kept wondering how the message of the statue turned from being about abolition to immigration. The student pondered on the ferry, past the seagulls, back on the bus, the whole ride home they thought about it. When they arrived home after the long trip, they asked, I've heard so many stories about the Statue of Liberty today. Which one do you think is true? These are some lines, some words from um, Prayer for My Daughter by Teddy Macker. It seems we have made pain some kind of mistake, like having it is somehow wrong. Don't let them fool you. Pain is a part of things. God comes to you disguised as your life. Blessings often arrive as trouble. Life appears to be fundamentally ambiguous, wily, every colored, unpin-downable. For evidence of this, spend time with trees. Over and over, they say, there is no final word. And big decisions, decisions concerning relationships, concerning children, concerning death, are rarely made cleanly. In general, be wary even if just a little, of talk of purity, of goodness. Shake hands with the whole catastrophe. The imperfect is our paradise. So, when things seem to be a mess, even a complex, beautiful mess, it's hard up here to know which part of the mess to address. The news lately can give a person whiplash, uh, swinging as it does between hopeful and hellish. Um, fortunately, being together can help us hold the whole mess and focus the feelings. And something that's helping me lately is reading The Quaking of America by Resma Menachem, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. Um, the Quaking of America, an embodied guide to navigating our nation's upheaval and racial reckoning. Fifty short chapters with exercises to help settle and prepare bodies of color and white bodies, and with careful attention to both um, for the reckonings we are in and the reckonings ahead. As I um, read through it this first time, I feel in my body that this is the work. It, this is the work. Um, and I will want to go back to the start and really work the book, maybe a chapter a week for a year, 50 chapters, two weeks off. Um, 
for me, it does something deep. Uh, so, so today, I, one thing that I've kind of latched onto is the butterfly hug that Resma teaches us toward the end of the book, and I thought we could do it together today, and, and so here's how it goes. Um, index, your, your middle finger, uh, put them, cross hands, and put them right, find your collarbone with the index finger, and then slide down about an inch. And the idea is to have the hands pointing more up at our neck than out to our arms. And then just kind of rest there and um, understand that a beautiful butterfly has lovingly lighted on your chest. And now we'll close our eyes if we wish. I will. And with one set of fingers, just lightly, gently pat. Pat, pat, pat. And let that one rest. And with the other set of fingers, pat, pat, pat. And then alternate again and just continue alternating right and left. And as we open our eyes and just gently remove our hands, let's see if we can still feel that butterfly there with us as we proceed. As we enter these moments of prayer and meditation, notice who shows up for you those who struggle in mind or body, those whose worlds have been assaulted by violence or by neglect, those affected by the shredding of basic human rights, those trying to cross our border at such risk with only harrowing options, those reverberating from harmful SCOTUS rulings, may we seek and find ways to be helpers as Mr. Rogers suggested. Helpers, strikers, allies, voters, marchers, whatever it takes. Those who are searching for courage, we hold them in our hearts. Searching for courage or a calling or a community of belonging. Those who've received good news or happened into long sought hard-won peace or joy. We pray for this living world, the furry and feathered and finny and leafy beings we love and need and who need us to pay attention. And we pray for ourselves that in whatever ways we are lost, that we can be and will be found. And you may wish to name those you pray for aloud or softly or in silence at this time. And will you pray with me this prayer? Holy One, Spirit of life who broods over us and lives in us, help us to find each other in the silence between the words. Help us to heal 
the loneliness of our expertise with the wisdom of our service. Help us to locate our gratitude, our thanks for the gifts that strengthen us. Help us to honor in ourselves and others the deep impulse to fully live. Beloved Spirit, challenge our despair, direct our courage, draw us toward one another as we offer ourselves to the project of loving and renewing this world. Amen. I'm going to start with a couple of short readings. The first is from Clint Smith, How the Word is Passed, a book I totally recommend to you. What would it take, what does it take, for you to confront a false history, even if it means shattering the stories you've been told throughout your life? even if it means having to fundamentally re-examine who you are and who your family has been. Just because something is difficult to accept doesn't mean you should refuse to accept it. Just because someone tells you a story doesn't make that story true. And this is from Leslie Marmon Silko's Landscape History and the Pueblo Imagination describing the gift of Laguna storytelling. Neither the worst blunders or disasters, nor the greatest financial prosperity and joy will ever be permitted to isolate anyone from the rest of the group. You are never the first to suffer a grave loss or humiliation. You're never the first, and you understand that you probably will not be the last to commit or be victimized by a repugnant act. I love that First Universalist is focused on telling bigger stories this summer. During this very summer, when the stories which rage around us from the Supreme Court's latest ruling to the details revealed at the hearings about January 6th, those stories are repetitive and familiar and dreary and oppressive and violent stories which separate us from all that is vital and alive. Last week, Kate Tucker introduced this theme and told us, anyone or anything that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Oppressive stories have big impacts on our lives, 
but they are born of teeny tiny imagination, if any imagination. These pathetic stories, rather than connecting us to the river of energy which runs through all of us and connects us one to another, seek to turn us into tiny isolated puddles where we fear we will dry up. It's a great time to refuse to be puddles, to stay connected to all that is alive and fluid, to immerse ourselves in the mighty river of the bigger stories which are still there for us and still vital. Today, as we reflect on this beautiful mess of a country we live in, as we mark this birthday of the United States of America, let's pause a moment and look for the bigger story. But before I get to the USA, I want to consider what it means to tell a story about anything. I was taught in public school that the center of every story is conflict. And the conflict can go one of a few ways. Man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself, or man versus society. Some of you who are older may have also heard this at school. Anyone? Yeah. I hope it's no longer all that's taught. But those of us who have learned about how to use and do media advocacy and prevail in American media also know that the stories there revolve around conflict. My primary teacher in media advocacy, Helio Fred Garcia, teaches that the media is looking for stories that will attract leaders, readers, or listeners, so the best stories contain as many of the five C's as possible. Conflict, controversy, contradiction, a cast of characters, and a colorful language. Conflict, always most important. You see why the former occupant was a media magnet. Many of us also learned about what story means by learning the stages of the hero's journey popularized by Joseph Campbell, the building blocks which described epic adventures from Odysseus to Luke Skywalker, where an individual, a hero, generally a male, undergoes a transformative experience and triumphs over whatever evil must be triumphed over. In the course of the journey, the hero might do battle with man, nature, himself, and society. And if you go online, you can see teachers' lesson plans for teaching about the 12 stages, the three stages, or the 17 stages of the hero's journey. But the story always ends with the hero coming back home with wisdom to save his people. What all of these frames share is that there is a struggle that must be resolved. And the focus is on one individual, one hero, who takes control of something that needs to be controlled, often by killing it, so that everyone else is okay. Contrast this with the wisdom of Laguna stories shared by Leslie Marmon Silco. She says, you're never the first to suffer a grave loss or humiliation. She describes stories that knit people together, let us know there's nothing we can do to be cast away. What hero wants to tell himself, you are never the first and you probably won't be the last to commit or be victimized by a repugnant act? Laguna stories and those of many indigenous cultures are stories of community and connection and the river of life we all swim in. They're often bigger stories. 
The stories of heroic individuals which we've been weaned on with mother's milk are much smaller. The stories of the founding of our country that I learned were, were stories with a cast of characters, heroic individuals. The struggle that had to be resolved was that Americans were being unfairly taxed by Britain. And with brilliant minds like Thomas Jefferson's and a brave warrior nature of George Washington, heroes prevailed and birthed a new kind of nation. Once these frames of what a story means have sunk into our cells, the stories practically tell themselves. I keep learning more and more about the lies and the complexities which are present in every one of the foundational stories which I was given as a young, white, middle-class child in America and yet the tenacity of the binaries, good people and bad people, the heroism of the white savior, persist as the dominant popular narrative. This good, bad, hero, villain, man versus everything binary frame is killing us, is killing the planet, and it's particularly effective at hurting groups that are powerless to defend themselves when stories cast them as the villain. Those of us trying to counter those narratives, especially in capitalist media, often reverse the frame of who's the villain and who's the hero and tell precisely the same kind of story in order to get any attention at all. And don't get me wrong, I love stories of alternative heroes. When I was down south last spring, I learned about Robert Smalls. Have you ever heard of Robert Smalls, anyone? An enslaved man who stole a Confederate ship and delivered it to the Union, passing so many Union cannons to do it. Why isn't every kid in second grade taught about Robert Smalls? But stories that simply make you applaud the courage of others from a comfortable distance, wow, I could never do that, have limited success of getting us out of our puddle consciousness. One of the gifts of Unitarian Universalism is our willingness to live with ambiguity and uncertainty to hold multiple truths and perspectives. And I believe that complex stories are vitally needed in this world. Stories like the one Kate told last week about sharks. And we need stories that teach us about the kind of courage that can only be born collectively, about community so strong that in the words of Leslie Marmon Silko, neither the worst blunders or disasters nor the greatest financial prosperity and joy will ever be permitted to isolate anyone from the rest of the group. This is the wisdom of how collective movements like Black Lives Matter have organized, refusing to rally behind one identified leader, but rather insisting always on the wisdom of the group. These are new stories we need to stumble with as we learn to tell them. We need stories that bind us to one another rather than setting us apart to compete. And we need stories to heal our loneliness. For many white Americans, part of the loneliness that we suffer is separation from our ancestors, except in very two-dimensional ways. In order to be able to truly draw up strength through our roots, we need to be able to connect fully with those we come from. Reverend Michael Slack Justice delivered the Berry Street Lecture at General Assembly last week, and you can watch it online, and I commend it to you. It's an amazing talk. 
He began his words by reminding us that we need to slow down enough to touch our indebtedness, get wrapped up in the entanglements that connect us to the earth and our ancestry. A black man, he then traced his lineage proudly back to his great-grandparents whom he named. Their presence was strong in him as he spoke. It is more complex for many of us who are white in this country to wholeheartedly call up the presence of our ancestors. Decades ago, I was in a weekend workshop led by the wonderful teacher Joanna Macy who uses Buddhist practice to engage people in the suffering and healing of the world. At one point, she, who is white, asked the all-white room of people to walk slowly in a circle and summon our ancestors. I made it around the circle once, and I started to cry, and I ducked to the side. Soon another woman joined me. She was German. My ancestors were Nazis, she said. My grandfather was a member of the KKK, I replied. We sat in silence. We didn't know how to summon our ancestors with joy. You might wonder how I came to know that my grandfather was a member of the KKK. There's a story there. The year was 1998. My parents, my sister, and our kids and I were in Wilmington, North Carolina to celebrate my grandmother's 100th birthday. Granny Mesa was still in great health, living independently, and we had long awaited this day, and my extended family had driven south to celebrate it with her. In 1998, we went to Wilmington, North Carolina to celebrate my grandmother's 100th birthday, but we didn't know until we arrived, until we went to the UU church in the morning, that we were also marking 100 years since violent white citizens murdered and drove out the black leaders who shaped Wilmington during and after Reconstruction. At church, we learned that the people of Wilmington elected a very progressive, racially mixed, forward-looking government after the Civil War, and that the black middle class was growing and thriving as it was in other places like Tulsa, that there was a black newspaper, and that then a violent band of whites took over the city and replaced the democratically elected people with their own militia leaders, that the federal government refused to intervene, and that people in militias remained in power where their descendants are still naming the streets after those families. Does that sound like a familiar story? A racist, violent coup to overturn a democratically elected government? I told you that stories of, of oppression lack imagination. Anyway, that night, my mother and my sister and I went down to the riverfront to witness the anniversary of this violence and to commit ourselves to healing. And then we went back to Granny Maisel's and told her about what we had learned. My grandmother got very quiet. She turned to my mother. Your father was there, she said. He was 16. He worked at the train station. Her words pierced me, stopped my breath, but I remained silent. I had asked too many questions over the years. Her harsh looks and clamped mouth had told me the wrong questions. For once, I had the sense to keep my mouth shut and let my mother handle it. My mother adored her father. My mother's questions would not seem hostile as mine would. I had never known him. And now my grandmother was telling us that her husband-to-be, my mother's father, my grandfather, was part of a violent white mob. 
I was silent, but it appeared that my mother had thought about this before. Mom, she asked, was Daddy a member of the KKK? Why, yes, he was, my grandmother replied. My mother had cancer even then, and she died not long after, and I had a young child. Yet, a quarter of a century later, I am so angry that I did not pursue that conversation with her. What had she seen that made her ask that question? How had she become the militant civil rights activist I knew all my life if her much beloved father was part of the KKK? What did she do with her love for him, knowing he was doing things she hated? As I've had time to process, to dig into family history, I've tried to talk to my siblings and cousins about our grandfather. Their reactions have been mixed, as you might guess. A lot of silence, defensiveness, protectiveness, white fragility. One generation down has been interested, have thought it's important. It's not incidental that two of them are BIPOC and two of them are Canadian. But imagine what a fluke it is that I learned this so late in my grandmother's life. We happened to be in Wilmington. We happened to go to church. We happened to talk to her about it. Imagine what a difference it would make if every school child learned about that racist coup in Wilmington 124 years ago and talked about how to ensure that such a thing could never happen again. Imagine if someone decided that that story mattered, that accountability for those actions was necessary to knit a community back together, that reparations needed to happen. I am grateful to be part of a faith community that knows we are strong enough to face hard truths that values more complete stories where we can be imperfect and have imperfect ancestors and still belong where we can honor our ancestors enough to know them in their entirety and try to right their wrongs. I am grateful to be part of a congregation which just voted to endorse the eighth principle to accountably dismantle racism as part of our journey towards spiritual wholeness. Your family stories are begging for careful scrutiny and they will all be different. Our national stories are important even as state legislators try to make telling true stories illegal. Currently, there are efforts in 36 states to restrict education on racism, bias, and the contributions of specific racial and ethnic groups to US history. Until we can tell a complete, bigger story of our country that, dis that doesn't deny or ignore the presence of racism, we can't know who we are. Outlawing the mentioning of what causes pain will not cure the pain. We cannot heal from what we refuse to see. Naming its presence doesn't take us away, doesn't take away what we love about our country or our family. In fact, I will wager I am spending a great deal more time with my ancestors than any of my siblings or cousins are because I want to know them in their completeness. So on this 4th of July, I encourage you to tell the family stories that connect you to your ancestors, that bind you to the land, that enable you to know fully who you are. The elders who are still with you will not be here forever, so learn from me and ask them the hard questions. 
These are the stories that can move us out of our individualistic little puddles into the larger river of narrative that can hold us all. Of course, our stories will be different, family to family, but together, these are the stories of our country and these are where our strength will be found to fulfill the dream articulated but never realized in the Declaration of Independence. And I've edited the sexist language. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Shake hands with the whole catastrophe. The imperfect is our paradise. Meg, we thank you for your passion and truthfulness and care for us. Thank you. When we gather in worship, we are mindful of the rhythm of giving and receiving. And one way we do that on the material plane is by sharing our financial resources. We do this in person here in the sanctuary, and we also provide online guidance for this. Our off offering recipient today is our partner organization, Habitat for Humanity. How many have been involved with Habitat? I see you, Chuck. Yep. Oh. Looks like half of the people here. Splendid. So Habitat began in Georgia in 1942, was envisioned as partnership housing by farmer, founder, and pastor Clarence Jordan. From the start, Habitat was committed to community and racial equity and emphasized working side by side to build decent, affordable homes. We need them now. And Twin Cities Habitat was established in 1985 by a Lutheran congregation in South Minneapolis. Since then, more than 1,500 local families have partnered with Habitat. We are glad and grateful to be supporters of this effort. As we leave the sanctuary today, we go remembering how big the story is, and we remember to seek the truth in love and to help one another and to tend that flame within and to bow to the mystery. So be it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First You Niv 
That's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V 273256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Thank you, God.